It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. It's a big news day. First, we're going to be reporting on a story coming out of Ohio where Anthem, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield has a new policy to deny claims for emergency room visits. They turn out not to be emergencies, forcing patients to put the bills. Former ED physician and Ohio resident Dr. Eric Reamer has that report coming up later in the broadcast. We'll also be reporting on a lawsuit against United Healthcare, alleging that the insurance giant is lowering payments to physicians contracted with Envision. Healthcare attorney Mary Inman will be calling in live from London for that report. And a third story about United Healthcare reveals that the carrier is cracking down on emergency department services at level four and five. Senator Cond is standing by to report that developing story. Also on the rundown, healthcare attorney David Glazer reports that some facilities are receiving cert letters with misleading information. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHersh, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I'm thrilled that Chuck has finally decided to share the wisdom of Dr. Reamer with the Rack Monitor audience. He has been very selfish, limiting her appearances to the Tuesday ICD-10 Monitor broadcast. She's a wealth of knowledge on clinical documentation. But as we heard, she's an emergency medicine physician, so I have to be careful not to talk about how it seems that every patient who's seen in the ED gets a CAT scan and a troponin, and those ED docs never seem to want to send anybody home. But today, I want to talk about rumors and innuendos. I constantly complain about how the regulations or guidelines are way too complex. And when things are complex, they get misinterpreted. And when someone misinterprets something and publicly spreads that misinterpretation, problems ensue. Now, let me state right up front that I'm not immune to this. As I reported in a past Rack Monitor article, I used to suggest combining admissions if a patient came back the day after discharge and it was determined to be a premature discharge. Turns out there's no provision that allows that. You actually have to file a separate claim. So I was wrong. But enough criticism of me. Recently, I was informed of misinterpretations that were widely disseminated and weren't mentioned. First, I was asked if CMS had made all cardiac stents inpatient only, as someone had heard that online. Well, no, that is not true at all. CMS did add CPT code 92941 to the inpatient only list, but that only refers to interventions during a heart attack. If that person went back to their hospital and advised all cardiologists to write admission orders on all elective cardiac cath patients who get a stent, that would be a big problem. The next misinterpretation was a lot of recent talk both online and on webcasts that said that the case-by-case exception for an expected one midnight stay for a total knee replacement should rarely or even never be used. Now, we've all seen that there are a wide range of opinions on the use of the exception, but to completely rule it out makes no sense at all. If CMS did not intend for it to be considered at all for total knee replacements, why would they have stated it in the final rule commentary that it can be used? 
And in April, there's going to be a Rack Monitor webinar with Mary Beth Pace and Dr. Jeff Pilger. I know that Dr. Pilger has operationalized the use of this exception just as CMS intended it on a case-by-case -case basis. And if the documentation supports the physician's decision, it's going to pass an audit. Want another example of rampant regulatory confusion? Just ask Dr. Reamer what to do about sepsis. So what's the lesson for today? Well, the regulations are complex and confusing. There are going to be misinterpretations and multiple interpretations, even from the experts. Trust but verify. Read the source documents, get several opinions, both internally and externally, then you can decide what's right for your facility. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And maybe some of the listeners here attended David Glazer's Fred Law webinar last week about ancillaries. I picked up on something related to the anti-kickback statute where David advised us that intent controls, where if even one purpose of payment is to influence referrals for federal health care programs, it's a crime. And shortly after that webinar, I was cruising through the Department of Justice press releases looking for relevant cases to put in my rehab training and came upon a case of a chiropractor in a clinic in Iowa that are going to pay $80,000 to resolve False Claims Act allegations involving free electrical stimulation. Mind you, electrical stimulation in Iowa pays about $18. So this chiropractic clinic has agreed to pay $80,000 and the government alleged that the conduct violated the anti-kickback statute and in turn, since those were tainted claims, the False Claims Act. So it always pays uh, to pay attention to David Glazer when he gives these, these risky businesses. And for an $18 electrical stimulation, actually, I'm going to correct myself, in Iowa, it's $13. Uh, somebody ended up paying $80,000 back to resolve allegations under the False Claims Act. Now we're going to take a look today to see where we're sitting with the RAC program, the Recovery Audit Program, which is how this program, uh, Monitor Monday, got its start. And it seems that in the years uh, since then, we've uh, expanded to discuss a lot of other areas. So let's step back to our roots and find out. For this year, has your RAC activity been more than you expected? or about what you expected, or less than what you expected. And of course, hit non-applicable if you're not subject to um, rack activity. Chuck, we'll be back a little later in the program to see where our listeners sit with those rack audits. Very good, Nancy. Thanks very much for a very interesting survey. That was Nancy Beckley. Nancy is uh, Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, and she's also the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about eight minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from Shannon DeConda, David Glazer, Mary Inman, and our special guest, Dr. Erica Reamer. This is Monday. It's March 19th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Cardiac pacemakers yield high rates of reimbursement, and now they're also a medical necessity target for rack auditing. Getting all the reimbursement you deserve is tricky, challenging, and complex. That's why Rack Monitor is conducting a webcast with Jill Knight, so you won't leave money on the table or have your reimbursement recouped. 
Register now to attend Defend Your Reimbursement Claims for Cardiac Pacemakers. Join Jill Knight as she reviews the current state of pacemaker coverage and how to set up a compliant documentation and coding program to secure appropriate payment and defend against rack audits. This webcast is Thursday, March 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. You might have noticed on our broadcast late that this week, Monitor Monday is saluting Health Information Professionals Week and the outstanding job that they're doing for America's healthcare systems. As Clark and I say, it's hip to be hip, it's hip week. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that some healthcare facilities are receiving cert letters with misleading information. Here now is healthcare attorney David Glazer, who files this risky business report. Good morning, David. Hey, Chuck. So first, I need to apologize. I had promised to talk about time-based billing, but this letter has forced me to delay that a week. So a health system I worked with received two cert letters, one to the clinic and one to the hospital. It's unclear to me whether there were two mints in one, but both were regarding the November 2018 cert report, provider error report. After explaining the CERT program, the letter says that it's being sent to assist providers with understanding the impact CERT reviews on having our national Medicare improper payment rates and foster corrective action. I found the letter nearly incomprehensible. There's a very difficult to understand paragraph describing the weighted CERT error rate that reads, the weighted dollars listed below are not the amount recovered from your facility. Only the amount Medicare paid for the claims attached was recovered. The weighted amount reflects the improper paid dollars affecting the national error rate. Now, I don't know if this is right, but I think what this means is that the dollar figures in the letter are close to meaningless. I think they're saying, we didn't take this money from you, um, but this is the amount we're going to tell everyone was billed incorrectly. I hope so, because the amounts are quite large. The extrapolated dollar rate for one letter was 600000 and the other about $2 million. But here's where things get ultra-crazy. The letters included a list of claims that had been reviewed. So how many problematic claims merited the $600,000 improper payment conclusion? I wish this one was the poll, because I'd give a huge prize if anyone got this right. Here's the answer. One. So it's one. It's probably a heart transplant, right? Wrongo. The single claim was for a lab service. Somehow, the contractor has concluded that based on a lack of documentation for a single lab, there's about $600,000 of improper payments for this client. So given that methodology, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the support for the $2 million overpayment consisted of five claims. Yes, five lab services. Five poorly documented lab services justify a finding of $2 million in improper uh, payments. In what universe? Now, I can't explain exactly what's going on here. In fact, I'm not sure it's explainable. But a few things seem quite clear. First, if you get one of these letters, don't panic. Something is clearly amiss. Second, we should all deeply distrust the these statistics, which I can't say, and which are being tossed out in all these cert reports. Um, this looks like pure, unadulterated drivel. So we're making some phone calls to try to figure out more about exactly what's transpiring. Uh, Nancy Beckley, who always has her pulse on, on, the, on things, has seen a similar letter in the physical therapy world where individual claims are being projected into large, large uh, 
error rates and consequently dollars paid incorrectly. So if you've received one of these cert letters, I'd love to hear from you. A recurrent theme on our broadcast is to distrust sweeping claims or sleeping ones. Uh, this seems like a beautiful example of what we need to push back against. This assertion of widespread fraud in the healthcare industry is based on nothing. It appears that the biggest fraud of all may be the fraud calculations themselves. So next week, I really do hope to talk about time-based billing. In two weeks, tune in to hear my rant about why hospitals want to seriously reconsider using the Joint Commission as their accrediting body. Today's story has me ultra-mad, and it undermines my usual optimism. So we could listen to a certs commercial, but I'm still dancing and with tears in my eyes. So we could also listen to Ultravox, a one-hit wonder, if you could even call that, from the 80s. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, David, very much. That was Health Care Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in a law firm at Fredericton Byron in downtown Minneapolis. United Healthcare is back in the news again, and we have two reports. Leading off our reporting is Shannon DeConda and a story about the giant insurer cracking down on emergency department service codes of level four and five. And following Shannon will be Mary Inman. She has a report on United Healthcare. And here now is Shannon. Good morning, Shannon. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you to everyone listening today. You know, nowadays, every week there seems to be something new, changes and adjustments to current policies by the carriers. Well, while I'm getting older, a fact I hate to admit, but it's better than the alternative, um, I'm not opposed to change even getting older. I, I don't like complacency in my life, but change should be reasonable and have purpose. United Healthcare, at the root of this week's change, we will review the change and allow you to decide, does it seem reasonable and does it have purpose? Effective March 1st of this year, United Healthcare for commercial plans as well as Advantage plans will no longer automatically process and reimburse ED services billed at level four and level five. Moving forward, they will use their Optum Emergency Department Claim Analyzer tool to systematically decide if ED visits seem reasonable to support those levels. The analyzer tool will review the diagnosis, the procedure code, the patient age, and gender to see if the ED service seems appropriate. On the flip side, if you use 99281 through 99283, your services don't get scrutinized. So what happens if the analyzer, based on that little bit of information, decides that you don't meet the need for the higher level? They will automatically downcode them or immediately deny those claims for reimbursements. So I will ask you, does this seem reasonable and a purposeful change? Well, let's back up and consider why UHC is creating such a policy. It's really because Fours and fives in the ED as well as in other places of service tend to be incorrectly used, which goes back to my diatribe of we need education, not necessarily policy changes, education. Scoring medical necessity of an encounter is rarely taught to coders, much less to physicians. In the ED, we know that if a patient comes in with high severity that does not pose imminent threat, that is a level four. 
On the flip side, when a patient comes in that has high severity with imminent threat, that would be the medical necessity of a level five. That makes absolute sense when you compare it to the documentation components of a level five within the MDM, which everyone likes to refer to. If you look at the diagnosis, you're going to need four points on the diagnosis to reach a level five. That's going to be a new problem with additional workup. According to most of the MACs, additional workup is considered work that is done beyond today's encounter, which also makes sense because typically providers are receiving professional reimbursements for work done today, as well as points in the data and complexity area as well. So it stands to reason that additional workup should be what's done beyond today's encounter. So in the ED, what would that be? Well, it would be an omission. Doesn't it make sense that if a patient has high severity with imminent threat, they shouldn't be walking out of the door of the ED today? So I circle back to my original question. Does this seem reasonable and purposeful? Well, I just, in my four-minute session, educated you quickly on the difference between fours and fives. So it seems to reason that maybe it would be more meaningful and purposeful to provide education. Having claims automatically denied is going to increase work on both sides. Providers are going to now have to identify those claims and appeal them. United Healthcare is going to have to process those appeals. United Healthcare, we're not opposed to the use of big data. That's where we are these days in healthcare. But before you downcode or deny a claim, shouldn't we actually have the encounter reviewed for documentation content and medical necessity? With that, Chuck, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks, Shannon, very much. That was Shannon DeConta. Shannon is the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NamUs as we know them to be. And you can read Shannon's excellent reporting on this subject in Thursday's edition of Rack Monitor. Another United Healthcare skirmish involves a lawsuit that alleges that the insurance giant lowered physician payments for physicians under contract to Envision. To help sort out those details, is Mary Inman calling in live from London. Good afternoon, Mary. What's going on here? Good afternoon, Chuck. It seems like we're piling on with United Healthcare today, but I will jump on the bandwagon. Um, two provider groups, Envision Healthcare Corporation and its subsidiary, Sheridan Health Corp., have filed suit against United Healthcare in federal court in Miami. The provider groups are alleging that UHC has been violating terms of its contracts with them since at least 2009, as well as a variety of other payment issues. Envision claims that UHC willfully disregarded its contracts and pressured its physicians to contract with UHC on unreasonable terms or be out of network. Envision also claims that UHC unilaterally lowered contracted payments and failed to even notify Envision of the changes. There is speculation that this lawsuit was filed due to pressure on Envision from patients, legislators, and investors for surprise bills that contained high charges, and that Envision is trying to reverse the narrative by blaming the increased costs on UHC. To give you a flavor of Envision's complaint, I quote, 
There is no question that United has and continues to willfully disregard the unambiguous expressed terms of the 2009 agreement as part of an overall strategy designed to injure plaintiffs, meaning Envision's reputation among patients and cause significant financial harm to Envision's business sufficient to pressure Envision to contract with United on unreasonable terms or be out of network. Envision picked a fight when Envision picked a fight with United Health Group, it should not be surprised that there may be fallout. Immediately after the suit was filed, United Health Group dropped out of a potential deal to buy Envision's ambulatory practice. Bloomberg reports the loss of UHC will complicate a sale of Envision. A private equity, a private equity bid for the purchase of Envision is still in the works. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Mary. That was Mary Inman calling in live from London. You can read her reporting on the most recent whistleblower case in this Thursday's Rack Monitor e-news. Thanks again, Mary. Our top news stories this morning are all about controversy surrounding two major health plans, United Health and, of course, Anthem. To report on the latest policy changes coming out of Anthem's Blue Cross Blue Shield in Ohio is former emergency room physician and a resident of Ohio herself, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's going on here? Well, Chuck, first we have to understand the history to understand the implication of Anthem's new policy, which is actually more widespread than just being in Ohio. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, EMTALA, was enacted in 1986 as part of the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1985, known as COBRA. EMTALA essentially mandates that anyone coming to an emergency department must have an assessment and needs to be stabilized regardless of the ability to pay. It is also known as the anti-dumping law, and it is intended to prevent charity cases from being shunted away from hospitals. If a patient presents to an ED, the hospital must perform a medical screening evaluation to determine if an emergency medical condition exists. If so, the patient must be treated or, ideally, stabilized prior to transfer to an appropriate facility. Hospitals with with specialized capabilities are obligated to receive transfers from facilities which are unequipped to handle unstable emergency medical conditions. Insurers, especially capitated HMO types, began requiring patients to get pre-authorization and were retroactively denying payment if the final diagnosis turned out to be non-emergent according to the payer. The patients and the hospitals got shafted. As a result, the prudent layperson definition was added in the 1990s as a revision to EMTALA. The prudent layperson definition of an emergency medical condition is any medical or behavioral condition of recent onset and severity not limited to severe pain that would lead a person, typical person, possessing an average knowledge of medicine and health to believe that his or her condition, sickness, or injury is of such a nature that failure to obtain immediate medical care could jeopardize life, limb, or mental health. In essence, the presenting sign or symptom is paramount not the final diagnosis, when determining whether to pay emergency medical claims. But apparently, we've traveled back in time, because last year, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield rolled back the standard for its non-Medicaid Medicare policyholders 
allowing the insurer to decline emergency department visit claims which they deem non-emergent. If they feel the patient could have been served in an urgent care setting instead, they just deny the bill. Exemptions include inability to access an urgent care due to geography or time, receipt of IV fluids or IV medications, or undergoing an MRI or CT scan. I support control of medical expenditures, but this is just plain wrong. We talked about Kevin Love and his panic attacks on Talk 10 Tuesdays last week. If you have chest pain and shortness of breath, it is imperative to seek medical attention. The final diagnosis should not be the determinant of coverage, and a layperson should not be expected to know. Is this going to backfire on Anthem? We've had articles in our local newspaper about patients who have gotten retroactive denials from them and are now reluctant to seek medical attention. Will patients die avoiding the ED? Could that result in a lawsuit? Are providers going to start initiating IV fluids or giving parental meds or order CT scans more liberally to justify payment? This, too, could be problematic if not medically necessary. My opinion is patients should be allowed to be patients. Emergency providers should provide excellent medical care to everyone regardless of the ability to pay. And insurers should reimburse healthcare providers and facilities for taking care of their patients. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Reamer. That was Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Dr. Reamer is also the co-host of Talk 10 Tuesdays, and she's a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board. Now's the time for the results of our Monitor Money listener survey. And once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy, let's take a look at the survey results. Let's see what's going on with our listeners and their requests from the RAC programs. 3% of our listeners this morning are indicating they have more RAC activity than what they expected. 29% say about what they expected. And 51% less than we expected. So if the RACs are listening, hopefully they didn't hear that. And then 15% was non-applicable. Let us know. Um, so we can reach out to you and maybe have a guest on the program to talk about some of the rack issues you're facing. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And David, let's take a look. A lot of questions came in this morning. You bet. And and one of them is really important, and I want to tee this one up for both Shannon and Dr. Hirsch to comment on. So one of our alert listeners, and I don't know if, if – um, if she wants to be named or not, so we'll skip this one, is, point, is asking a question, hey, is this – policy on the emergency room stuff, facility side or professional side or both? And so I'll start off. I, I think both um, uh, Shannon and Ron would like to comment on this. So Ms. DeConda, we'll start with you, then go to Dr. Hirsch. Thank you for the point of clarification. I did kind of in my rant go off on the overall coding of levels of service more from a professional basis, but this policy is geared towards facility-based services. Dr. Hirsch, do you have something to add to that? I want to go off on CMS for using the same codes for facility and professional. I think most physicians know we have E&M codes and they apply only to professional services. So why CMS chose to use those same numbers makes no sense at all and created this big confusion. And Dr. Hirsch, any further comment on the policy itself or you want to rest with that? It's a facility issue and I think hospitals 
Um, CMS has said that hospitals can set their own policies on when they use which codes. It is now reported on the PEPR, your use of the 99285. So it is worth taking a look at how you use that code compared to other facilities. Thanks. The next question is also for you, Dr. Hirsch. So what sources are available regarding inappropriateness of combining next day readmissions? If that listener could email me, I can send them my Rack Monitor articles that explains that. Um, there is no policy, and it's hard to prove that something doesn't exist. So my article explains it in the best way I can. Chuck, at this point, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Shannon Aconda, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in from London, and our special guest, Dr. Erica Reamer, and we thank you for being with us this morning. And, of course, we look forward to your returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.